I'd like you this morning to uh, try to envision your ideal life. Like if, you're, if, if you could have your ideal in life, what would it be? And uh, just try to think about that for a minute. And it might include things like good health, uh, not only for yourself, but maybe for family and friends. And it uh, might include having those family members close by or those friendships close by. It, all, it could include, uh, you know, time to yourself and being away from those family and friends uh, to, you know, just uh, have some rest and, and, and not be bothered by anyone. That might be your ideal life. It could include, you know, lavish vacations. It could include, um, you know, uh, being famous or lots of, whatever it is that's your ideal life. Um, you know, it could include uh, season tickets to the Jets games or something. I, like, I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, try to just picture, what's that ideal life that you would have? Now, I think for a lot of us, we have kind of a, a temporary, uh, immediate kind of nature. So when we th- do an exercise, like think about what our ideal life is, uh, if, if you were someone who was living in slavery your ideal life will first involve freedom. If you are living with cancer, your ideal life will first involve a clean bill of health. If you're someone who's just constantly running in all directions, your ideal life will likely include some sense of calm or rest. And each of us have kind of those situations. Something might have popped into your head that, oh, if only my life was like this. And it's probably out of response to what your life is like or maybe a negative thing that's in your life. But imagine if you got that ideal life or you got those things, those temporary fixes. What then? The reading from Isaiah and the reading from Mark, both have this phrase, prepare the way of the Lord. And I want to tell you a little bit about the the context of the Isaiah reading. These words were directed to people who were in exile. So they they were the the people of God who uh, had been living in Judah, had uh, Babylon, had invaded and taken a large number of the people out of their homeland and were keeping them captive in, in Babylon. So there were people living in exile. Certainly, the ideal life for them is to be able to go home. And this call comes out in the book of Isaiah. The call is not to figure out and make a plan of how you're going to get home. The call is not to work harder on that goal. The call is not to overthrow the Babylonian government. The call is simply for the people to prepare But at the same time as this call, God tells them that he is the one who is going to do everything to make it possible for them to return. He talks about the valleys being lifted up and the hills being made low. If we, quite literally, he's talking about making a highway through the wilderness, a highway from Babylon to Jerusalem, and making it a nice smooth road for them. And God's really clear that he's the one who's going to do it. It's not that they've got to try and construct that. 
And as we read the Isaiah text, it can be a bit tricky because it's actually a conversation that's happening between Isaiah and God about what Isaiah is to tell the people. And so there's this conversation that happens partway through, and we're not quite sure who's speaking at what time. Um, but my reading of it is that um, when we get to this, uh, we get to this part, I'll just take a look at it, where it says, a voice says, cry out. That's God saying, Isaiah, I want you to cry out. Go cry out to the people. And I said, what shall I cry? And a lot of us chop off right there that Isaiah is now done speaking and that God is now going to say the rest. But I actually think Isaiah is still speaking. So God says, cry out. Isaiah says, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Like he's saying, what can I possibly say? Because the people are just kind of like grass. And I think he's talking about the immediate need, the exile that they're in. We can't get out. I mean, if we were going to depend on ourselves, there's no way we could do it. Our constancy isn't there. We're fading fast, like the, the grass and the flowers withering. And God's response to this is, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of glad tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up and do not fear. And that's God's response. He, notice that God does not say to Isaiah, no, no, you're not fading. You're not like grass. He says, yeah, absolutely. But that's not what you're depending on. You're depending on the word of the Lord, which stands forever. And I think we can bring this into our own lives as well. Like a slave just can't get free just by flicking a switch. The sick can't just get better. The stressed person can't just get unstressed by pressing some unstress button. But God says, cling to the word of the Lord. It stands forever. The grass, the people, they wither, they fade, and you might feel like you're fading, but the word of the Lord stands forever. He's bringing the valleys up and the hills are being made low. Believe it. Believe that God can turn impossible situations around and believe it so much that you'll stand on a mountain and shout it to others who also need to hear the good news. Their preparation prepare the way of the Lord, their preparation was to believe that God could deliver on what he was saying. It was a preparation of the heart. Now, the turnaround for the exiles is not the whole thing. God actually has way more uh, in mind than simply getting the exiles home. But most of them I think that's all they're envisioning. But for God, that would only be the starting place. And, and, I, and I'm convinced the exiles, what they would be thinking about, they'd be thinking about going home and they'd be thinking about an idealized version of their past. Let's get home where, where we can do our own thing again. And if you go and read what happened to the exiles, I mean, it got interpreted as the reason why they were taken off into captivity in a theological sense, was because they had turned so far away from God 
that this was actually God's way of either teaching them a lesson or that they just need to get be out of there and realize what it meant to depend on God. But most of them are probably longing for, oh, if only we could go back to when everything was great. Everything actually wasn't great. And I think we do that to our, our visions of what we would hope our life would be. We, we don't go beyond them. But God has a different future in mind for the exiles and probably has a different future in mind for us. And it's, 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 not, it's not a future that anyone can quite see. If we go into the Gospel of Mark, we, we find that uh, it tells a story about John the Baptist who comes and he quotes Isaiah 40. Prepare the way of the Lord. And his message is, Jesus is coming, so get ready. And his message is basically repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It says this is what he was preaching. So when he's talking about prepare the way of the Lord, he's also talking about a preparation of the heart. Repentance, and we sometimes get hung up on these kind of uh, religious words. It's actually quite a simple concept. Repent just means to turn. It's not feeling bad. It's not any of those things. It just means to turn or to change. Often it's applied to the heart or the mind. Um, I, I like to sometimes think of repentance as change your mind. You've got your thinking over here. You've got to change to think how God thinks, how Jesus thinks. When the ancient Israelites used um, heart, they, they actually meant, we sometimes mean heart as the, the feeling part of the body. They meant the, the, the thinking, the, the willpower, and also the feeling. So it was a much more all-encompassing term. So change of heart does, just doesn't mean I feel this way. It's, it's, it's more all-encompassing than that. So this is what repentance is, is this change of heart. So turn, really, from one way of living and turn toward right living in God and right thinking in God. Now, it's interesting to me that generally Christianity has taken John the Baptist's message and, and we've turned it into the entire gospel. Right? God forgives your sin and wants to turn your life around. So receive that forgiveness and repent. I mean, that's kind of what Christianity has said is the gospel. Yet, in the gospel of Mark, that's what John proclaims and Jesus is coming to do something else. And according to Mark and John the Baptist himself, there is mo- there's just more to come than this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We're reminded that this is the beginning, right at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. In verse 1, it says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. The author of the Gospel reminds us that this is just the beginning. This isn't the goal. Forgiveness of sin and life change is not the goal. It's the preparation for what is to come.
And John's message is actually has that more embedded in it because it's not simply repent, be baptized, and receive the forgiveness that's granted by God, as big as that is. It's also there is one coming after me that is more powerful than I. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I think lots of people assume that this means that John's message and John's baptism is kind of, it's kind of temporary. Or that John's baptism is only symbolic, which I, according to one of my professors in seminary, you should, it's a sin to say only symbolic. Um, it's symbolic. That's only as that. Symbol is important, according to my liturgy professor. But that's kind of what we do with, with, uh, with what John has. And, and so we say, well, Jesus is coming and Jesus will do something more real. And we'll all kind of think we know what we're talking about when we say that. But he's going to do something essentially the same as what John did, right? Forgive us and ask us to repent. But it'll be kind of permanent, I guess, or more real than what John was talking about. I don't actually think that's right at all. I, I think people went to see John baptizing people in the Jordan River, and they experienced something really powerful, something very real. And I think they learned again that God could set them free. But John was pointing to the fact that our trusting in God to forgive our sins is just the beginning. Because there is one who is coming who brings the Holy Spirit. And that's something else entirely. But what is that? And what does that look like that Jesus is going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit? I don't think any of them knew what that was either. Okay, when John was talking about this, I don't think they really knew what that was. Even though that's what they are asked to be preparing for. And and I really don't think we, we really like this idea of uh, we don't know what it means to have the Holy Spirit come and be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because we have those pictures, even though I only just asked the question today, you already have the picture of, well, my life could be like this. And the problem is, is that with the unknown of the future and what God might do in the Holy Spirit, God couldn't really mess around with your ideal life. Being immersed in the Holy Spirit by Jesus might really interfere with your version of your life. And it, it, it's important to know that when John is using the word baptism here, because we've got all kinds of church baggage attached to that word, it's a word that means dip or to immerse. And so when he's saying, it's helpful to substitute, I think, the word immerse in here when he's talking about Jesus, the baptism Jesus will bring. He's saying, I, I dipped you in water. But when Jesus comes, he'll immerse you in the Holy Spirit. Like you'll be wrapped in the Holy Spirit. That's, that's more the, the level that we're talking about. But I, I'm not sure we're prepared for that or really want it. Because we've got this picture of what our life could be or ought to be. But, 
and we've got a problem because our ideal lives and our lives now are, are temporary. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Now this is right at the beginning of the gospel story, right at the beginning of the gospel of Mark. Jesus is actually about to do a whole bunch of things. So he shows up and Jesus himself gets baptized. And Jesus goes and he heals all all kinds of people and teaches. And people start getting the beginning of their ideal lives, especially the, the disenfranchised and those who are in great need. Like, think about it, a, a leper gets healed. That's their ideal life. I don't have leprosy anymore. I mean, their life has just completely changed now. Jesus starts activating all these ideal lives, especially for the poor and the sick. But I wonder, with those people that Jesus did that for, what happened after that? I mean, that's a great first few weeks, right? Well, then, then what did they do? Do they, do they go to a, a usual life? Or are they now ready, because of what they've gone through with Jesus, ready to receive the Holy Spirit and live quite differently? Now, as we follow through on the rest of the story and get through to the book of Acts, we see that there's a major difference in what takes place amongst the followers of Jesus after the Holy Spirit shows up. In Acts chapter 2, there's a a clear moment of the the coming of the Holy Spirit. And essentially, the the Jesus movement, when Jesus was there, was was very small, this, this little group of people trying to be faithful. And at the end of his life, I mean, it was really small. There was just a few women and one male disciple at the cross. That could have been the end of it. Some witnessed the resurrection and it grew, you know, there was a couple more people. But after the Holy Spirit came, this whole thing just totally came alive. And it wasn't because those believers were were these great people or anything like that. The Holy Spirit did something. All kinds of amazing things take place. And those first fishermen and tax collectors, they don't look back on their old careers. The Holy Spirit has taken over, and they're just in the middle of this great movement of God, and I'm sure they couldn't believe what was happening. But those first followers also had three years of preparation with a great teacher, with Jesus himself. They had focused preparation. And you can find these not just in the Bible, but you'll find this also in times uh, in history in the last 2,000 years when there's been times of revival or, or growth in the church or reawakening within the church, a renewed understanding or a vibrancy that takes place. You'll find that all of them are preceded by a time of preparation and waiting for the Holy Spirit. Primarily, those have been times of prayer. And then the Holy Spirit does something dramatic. And it's not that the prayer or the preparation made the Holy Spirit do it. It's that the preparation put the people in a position to say yes to the Holy Spirit's activity among them. And I think this might make us uncomfortable. Because the Holy Spirit has a way of interfering with our own plans. 
But really, I think the discomfort is just because we don't know what the Spirit will do. And we don't know what that will look like. The disciples had no clue that when Jesus called them, that that they would be the apostles who would lead this movement of thousands of people that turned into millions and now billion. If they did, I think those fishermen might have stayed in the boat. It's really good to trust God with with our dreams for our own individual lives and our plans. It's good to trust God uh, with those things. It's good to trust God to deliver us when times are tough, to heal us, to set us free. But envisioning our ideal life like I asked you to do is perhaps a misplaced kind of activity. Because God has a better vision than you do. We might not know what it is, but we've got to trust God for it. Uh, I think uh, kids teach us this really well. I was, uh, we were talking yesterday. Cheryl and I love to travel, and uh, we were talking yesterday, and I asked uh, Juliet, and this is, you hear there's no stupid questions, right? Well, parents ask stupid questions of their kids all the time. At least I do. Um, this was really stupid question, and I asked, you know, if, if, Juliet, if you could go anywhere in the whole world, like, where would you want to go? Nowhere. <laughs> Ever. Okay. Well, she's, you know, she's four and a half. She's almost five years old. She, what does she know about the world? Like, I, what's she going to say? Like, what a stupid question. Oh, I'd really like to see the Leaning Tower of Pisa. You know, like, she, she's not going to she, She's been to Disney World, so she finally came around with some convincing. Oh, yeah, right, Disney World. Yeah, I'd like to go there again. That'd be good. But she doesn't know anything, really, about the world in which we live and the wonderful things you could see. And, and see, we're like that with God. Right? We've got our pictures of, oh, I'd really like to, my life to be this way. Or if my life's bad, I have an idea of how it could be good. And if my life's good, I have an idea of how it could be better. And, and it, I don't think it matters what stage of life you're at. But we see the world the way we see the world. Not the way God sees the world. If God asks me, hey, what, what's your ideal for the world? And then if he was able to show me what his ideal is and what, what he could offer me, I mean, they're not even on the same playing field, are they? So let's take some time, not just in Advent, but in our lives, to prepare for, for what we don't know. It's a preparation of the heart. And it involves prayer and focus and trust in Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.